right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Really quickly before we get started here, just a heads up. There is, this isn't our best audio. This is a, uh, a casualty of doing a lot of these over the phone over the last three months. We have performed some CPR to this file. Uh, we had to cut some sections out that just didn't buffer properly. As you can tell, our, our phone connection wasn't wasn't the strongest ever. Um, probably, may, maybe didn't need to send this warning, but just bear with us throughout this episode on uh, the connection and whatnot. I promise the uh, the material within it is well worth it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Usually we'll do a, an intro where I'll uh, kind of update you on what's going on in the world of Callaway. But we have uh, Olin Brown is with us today, and he has been with Callaway. I don't even, I don't even know how long you've been with him, but uh, you can maybe start us with that, Olin, and tell us uh, what's, in, what's currently in your bag. Uh, well, Chris, thanks for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, it's kind of a rainy, crummy day here in South Florida, so you caught me at a good time. I got <laughs> going on. We'll have a good chat, but uh, I've been in Callaway since January of 92, which makes it my 29th year with the company, which is really great. Um, and that's not normal, right? Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know if that's not normal or it is normal or whatever, but all I know is that I got in with Callaway just as it was breaking onto the scene, and it's been fun to be part of that ride for as long as, it, as we've been doing it. So what is currently, uh, what are you gaming these days? What's in your bag? What kind of ball are you playing? What's the, what's the full rundown? Yeah, I got I got the uh, the Chrome Soft X ball in the bag. I've got fourteen Callaway, well, thirteen Callaway clubs and an Odyssey putter. I got the Mallet three thirty putter that I've had in there for about six years. I don't change my clubs too often. I do put the new driver and fairway woods in play whenever I get the chance. So I've got I've got uh, you know the Maverick Sub Zero driver ten point five degree single diamond. I've got uh, three and five wood fifteen and eighteen degrees. I've got an old Razor hybrid in the bag but i'm trying to work in one of the new hybrids i think the face has finally had it after 12 or 14 years of using that either and uh and i've got the x Forge irons and the new mac daddy 5 uh wedges a 56 and a 60 so i figure i've got all my bases covered with that stuff and you know the the new drivers are really impressive the maverick has a great look uh the, the look isn't a lot different than they had last year with the epic flash it seems to go really, really well. And uh, I just think that, you know, the innovations were coming so fast and so furious that it was hard to improve on the product before. Callaway has really, ever since Chip Brewer came back, came into the fold and came on board, has really made it a, a point to put markedly improved product on the market and into our hands. And, you know, the proof is kind of in that. So it's great. It's great, it's great stuff. Well, that's where I, I and people are probably sick of me talking, hearing me talk about it, and probably roll their eyes. Of course, that uh, we are very clearly an upfront sponsored by Callaway. But every year, it's like by the end of the year, I'm like, you know what, I guys, I don't need a new driver. I don't need one. I don't want one. I, I'm good. I hit this one great. I did not want to give up my Epic Flash. And as soon as I hit the Maverick, I was like, wait, how? Like, how is it better? I don't understand how it's better. But my question in relation to that, and we can conclude the ad portion of uh, of this. But as, what would it be like? For someone like you, who, who you know, but the same equipment company specifically is why I'm asking. If you had to go back to playing what you played in 1992 and you were using that right now on the PGA Tour Champions, 
what would you what would you have to change? What would that be like? And what what kind of the, would the how different would the challenges of golf be? You know, that's really a funny question. But one of the one of the things that that uh, attracted me to Callaway is that it's, it was the mantra: pleasingly different, demonstrably better. Right, and I was shocked when I saw the the Warbird clubhead or the first iteration of those clubs because they were remarkably different. I mean, whereas club heads had a certain shape and size to them, these things were wide and and uh, they had longer faces and thinner heel to top or, you know, sole to top. They, they just looked different and they were more playable and they were, you know, all of a sudden you could hit a driver off, off the deck um, with much more ease than I could with the, the club that I had been playing up until that point. So um, if I had to go back to that stuff, I could survive it because that was really a revolutionary product. Well, I think we'll get back into uh, some technology stuff as it relates to, to your career and you how you've progressed through the PGA Tour champions when we get to that. But I want to first touch on a couple. Uh, one, a recent item in the golf world and one that's uh, new and, and in the future, I guess, the very near future from when this episode is going to come out. But you're a medalist guy, I guess, and uh, you had some involvement in the match, the recent match that was down there. Uh, take us through what your role was down there. My, my role was to uh, flip on the TV and watch it on Sunday like <laughs> six, six million other eyeballs. Um, look, I've known Slugger White and Steve Rintoul for 40 years, and they came down to kind of preview the golf course and get their – you know, they hadn't been here in a long while. Uh, they had both played the course a number of years ago with uh, Greg Norman, who's the original architect, and along with Pete Dye. And, you know, I went out with them and offered – you know, my 20 plus years of playing there as a resource if they wanted to ask any questions. And basically, that was where we left it. I drove around with them. They asked questions about wind direction, hole locations, how shots play from certain angles, this and that and the other thing. And that was the extent of my input. So they, they set up the golf course. Those guys are pros. They know exactly what they're doing. And they, uh, I was just, you know, it was kind of fun to, to put on an official's hat for a day and walk around the golf course and look at the things that they look at and see as potential issues, you know, where do we, where, where do we draw hazard lines or they're called penalty area lines now. Do we need a ball drop here or, you know, whatever. And so I, I just basically, for one of the few times in my life, kept my mouth shut, stayed out of the way and tried to learn something. Hmm. Transitioning a bit from that, you are going to be playing the uh, Charles Schwab Challenge for the first time since I believe 2014. Um, what made you kind of decide to take up, so, so tell us how, how you're able to able to play it you know, of course, uh, being a past champion of that one. Um, and what made you decide that this was uh, a good year to, to, to uh, revisit Colonial? Well, I won Colonial in 99, and everybody up through my my year of victory received a lifetime invitation to come back and play. And uh, everybody from 2000 forward gets the normal five years. And I, I don't know why that is, but it's just, you know, it's something to do with the way the tour functions and the way the, the tournament it's a special event. It's an invitational. So that, that's part of its legacy. And so um, I've always had the option of coming back and playing. And I did in 2014, but it was opposite our senior PGA. And as much as I love Colonial, it's really hard to miss a senior major championship. Right. And so after having done it in 2014, I really felt like I, I should focus my attention on the Champions Tour. Now, having said that, because of all the stuff that we're dealing with, this COVID and all this, all the stuff associated with it, the senior PGA was canceled this year, and Colonial, as a matter of fact, was rescheduled to a later date. 
there's no conflicting event on the PGA Tour champions. And as a past champion, I, being invited back, and I don't take up a spot in the field. Right. I'm an add-on to the tournament. So if they have a 140-man field, I'm 141. I, I don't feel bad about playing because I'm not not affecting anybody else's access. That's what I was getting ready to. I was going to pose it that way as a, as a, hey, I'm a hater from the outside. Why are you taking up a spot from the field? So I'm glad you help explain kind of what those what those bonus spots are because it's you. Uh, it'll be you and I think. Uh, gosh, is it Keith Clearwater that that plays in it a lot too? Clear plays in it. I think Tom Lehman's playing this year. David Frost. There are a number of us playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and by the way, I think virtually every guy who's in my category, our category would come back and play it if it were an open date on our tour. That's, that's how much affection we have for the event and the people who have run the event. And it's going to be great to go back and see some old friends and, you know, stomp around on some old grounds, albeit with a whole different generation of players. I mean, these, these young players are so good. It's just going to be really enjoyable to go back and be a part of that again. Yeah, I mean, it's just a a sporting event that I would think is amazing to be a part of, and you're in such a unique position where, you know, you you are you're playing like you said, you're playing in a spot that's not you know in no way taking up any other spot, and it's going to be the greatest field in tournament history. It has to be based on uh, all the guys that are primed up and ready to play after a few months off. Yeah, I think everybody's everybody's ready to go back to work. There's an awful lot of craziness happening in this day and age right now around this country, and Whatever the reasons and whatever the motivations and all this kind of stuff, it's just, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that people have been, look, they're responding to an event that occurred that's really dark, but it's also the fact that people have been locked away for the better part of three months with nowhere to go, nothing to do, you know, jobs have disappeared, people are, they're really at odds with what's happening in life right now, and so, so I think we're all anxious and excited to have an opportunity to do something that represents anything remotely normal. Well, what's the process been like for you in terms of preparation from a, you know, a safety standpoint? I mean, have you have you versed yourself uh, t- deeply in the, I don't know if you call it a handbook that I think players have been provided regarding, regarding safety and protocols uh, responding to COVID-19? I mean, is that uh, something you're, you're well-versed on and ready to talk about? Or is that something you're going to be doing as a crash course on the way to, uh, to the tournament? Well, I think that we've been, you know, we've been sent information on what's going to happen. We're undergoing some t- some testing currently when we get on site. I-, I think that the first week or two, people are going to start start in with the with the process, and we're going to learn how that happens and what has to be done. But I, I don't think that it- it's going to be anything more than you know additional testing and so forth, but an extension of what we've already been doing, which is a lot of people have been practicing uh, social distancing and, you know, I wear a mask when I go to the store, go out in public. I do it as much as a courtesy to the people that are concerned about their health as I do for my own. I think, you know, I'm on the uh, I'm on the borderline of the one of the at-risk groups, right? I'm 61 years old. You got to be in your mid-60s. You're, you're one of the at-risk groups. I don't have any underlying conditions. And I walk around the, the store sometimes, I, you know, going to grab some hamburger or something like that. And, I see some older people with masks and wearing gloves and, you know, they're plenty concerned, I think rightly so. And so, you know, we need to kind of look around and and be as accommodating as possible everywhere we can and go from there. And I think, I think these next few weeks starting next week, uh, what's going to be interesting to me is, Hey, when we get on the airplane, what's going to be like going through the airport? What's going to be changing plane? What happens if somebody on the plane is sick, you know, or appears to be sick? All these things are things that, 
those of us who haven't been out and about and haven't traveled are going to discover it. it's going to be an ongoing education. Well, on a different note, what is, you know, I know you haven't been back to Colonial, I think, since, since we mentioned 2014, but what what makes a, a that golf course uh, a good course for someone like you to go back to? I think to a large extent, the, the course is, it's an old style course. So it's a little bit in the vein of a, of a Harbor Town or a TPC Cromwell or, you know, one of the older style, Pebble Beach, let's say, an older style golf course where the guys who, first of all, they're only two par fives. So that's two fewer par fives per day, which is eight fewer per tournament for eagle and cheap birdie opportunities. So it kind of neutralized, not didn't neutralize, but it, it mitigates to some extent their their advantage when they hit at 350 and 360 off the tee, which you see at a place like Colonial when it plays fast, right? If you don't hit the fairways there, you're in flyer rough, Bermuda rough, and coming into really small greens, it's very difficult to control the golf ball. The wind tends to blow, although, look, we're going to be three or four weeks later than normal. It's usually the third week of May, and this is going to be the second week of June, so I don't know if the weather's going to be a lot different. I do kind of remember that Colonial can be like the first really hot weather of the year, right? Mm-hmm. It can get to be in a cookout. So you look at the guys who have won there, and it, it's it's a wide range of styles of play. It's older guys. Tom Watson won when he's, I think, 49 years old. It's Hall of, well, Hall of Famer. There's Tom Watson. You know, you got Phil Mickelson has won there. You got Justin Rose has won there. You got Ben Crenshaw won a couple times there. Corey Pavin won a couple times there. It's guys who, look, who could control their golf ball, make good decisions on the golf course, and capitalize when they hit good shots into these really small greens with these tight hole locations. So it's an old-style golf course. It's a brilliant design. It's got an incredible legacy with being known as Hogan's Alley. Ben Hogan won it five times. He used to hang his hat there quite a bit. Best buddies with Marvin Leonard uh, before he went and hung out at Shady Oaks. So it's one of those courses that you know has a connection to the history of our game and the legacy of the PGA Tour. And it's just really great to be able to go back and play at a place like that. Yeah. Well, you know, usually I do like some some research and whatnot on a player's, you know, background and, and career and whatnot. And, you know, usually have guys explain parts of their amateur career. And usually it's kind of the same story. You know, good junior player, grew up, you know, went to college, blah, blah, blah. And I'm picking up some nuggets and I just need to hear from your from you tell the story exactly when you started playing the game of golf, period, and when you started playing the game competitively. Yeah. I really didn't pick up the game. I mean, I had some experiences with my dad played the game, and there were always golf clubs lying around the house. And we used to go out and bash them around the backyard or my grandparents' house. They lived in the country, so we'd go out and kind of, you know, play from one tree to another tree when I was a kid. But I I really didn't play golf until I got to college and, uh, you know, got a summer job after freshman year working in a bag room. Kind of picked up the game, and and really, from that point, it took me about – I was, I guess I was 19 years old. I, I, I became a PGA Tour rookie in 1992. I was 32 years old. So I was actually thinking about retiring in the late 80s. And then the Ben Hogan Tour came around 1991. I was able to stay in the game. I, I just couldn't justify playing mini tours any longer. You know, my wife and I had had our son. And I'm very thankful for the Ben Hogan Tour, which is now the Corn Ferry Tour. Kept me in the game for long enough until I could get on tour. And then, you know, I did the rookie year mistakes you know when i lost my card and had to go back it was then the nike tour went back and finally made it back out to the pga tour 94 96 for good 
A quick break here. I don't need to remind you on this as we are discussing it here with uh, Olin Brown, but golf is back. We have a full weekend of golf ahead of us. We're going to be treating this event uh, as if it's a major. We're going to talk more about it in our preview episode here coming uh, up on Tuesday as well. There are big cash winnings to be had uh, to add to the excitement of just sports in general. Returning DraftKings Sportsbook, which is America's top-rated sportsbook app, is putting you in the center of the action. Sign-up bonus up to $1,000. So, again, the field this week at the Charles Schwab Challenge is off the charts, the best field they've ever had by far. And DraftKings Sportsbook is the place to get all your bets in ahead of this weekend's tournament. Head to the app right now. Check out what they have to offer, including player props, day-by-day action, even hole-by-hole live betting. So, Plus, DraftKings is a Sportsbook is a safe, secure, and reliable betting app. You can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. And if the sportsbook is not available in your state yet, don't forget about the DraftKings Fantasy app, which is running a huge fantasy golf contest this weekend with a $1 million top prize up for grabs. So download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use code NLU to claim your sign-up bonus up to $1,000 again. All new users, sign-up bonus up to $1,000. Just enter code NLU when you sign up only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus and a first bet match, each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Let's get back to Olin Brown. Well, before we get too far into the PGA Tour career, I guess there's something that we got to cover between, yeah, picked up the game at 19 and started playing professionally. So, I mean, did it come to you just rapidly? I mean, how do you how do you determine and when did you determine that you had the skill to play, even if it was just mini tours, but had the skill to play professionally? Uh, it's such a – I don't know if there's enough time in the show for me to go through the whole thing, to be honest with you. You know, these kids are so good so early, but it takes people 10 or 15 years to learn how to play the game. Any right-minded person, anybody thinking clearly, would have chosen something else because I had started so late. You know, it's, it just wasn't a really reasonable approach career-wise, and somehow it panned out. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. I had a lot of support along the way. My wife was very, very supportive. Um, I had to talk my folks into it. They they thought I was cracked, and I think they're probably right. You know, but I I think the lesson there is is that you can never underestimate somebody's commitment when they've got the, the bit in their mouth, you know? And so if something really excites somebody and you have the opportunity to turn your avocation into your vocation, I think it's a, it's a blessing and you never feel like you have to go to work. And as long as you maintain that kind of enthusiasm, I think it makes, uh, it makes the, the road a little bit less wearing, if you will. You know, I still have the same enthusiasm as I did when I was 25 years old. I don't, I don't have the same stamina at 61, but I still love the game. and I still think I can get better. And You know, I have such admiration for a guy like Tom Kite, 70 years old, and I see him banging out, banging out balls on the range because he thinks he's going to get better. You know? And, you know, that's a marvel to me. And like I said, I have great admiration for that. Yeah, I'm always amazed at the people that – the desire for exactly that, which is to get better, it never leaves you. I mean, right? I mean, all most other sports, basically every other sport, you know, has a finite end to it. Whereas golf, in theory, can go until you can't walk eighteen holes anymore. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the real blessing of it is, you know, the way the tour is structured in the PGA Tour Champions is if you have a reasonable career on the PGA Tour, you, you can you can 
transition onto the Champions Tour and get another 10 years out of it. And the idea that players can be 50-plus years old and competing at the highest level at their level in the sport is extraordinary. And, you know, think about the idea that if you go, you've come to one of our events, you, you can watch all of the famers actively competing at the highest level in their sport. And it's proven out by the fact that Tom Watson, Hall of Famer, almost won the Open Championship at Turnberry at 59. And just a year or two earlier than that, Greg Norman almost won the Open Championship that was won by Todd Hamilton. So guys' skills don't diminish. Their acuity may and their ability to sustain it over long periods of time may. But Hall of Famers are Hall of Famers. And you can come to any one of our tournaments and watch six or eight of them play on any given week. And that's what, you know, and the one that I go that people don't ever talk about as much, and he wasn't that, that close, but gave it a run is uh, Jack Nicholas in 98 at the Masters, which, you know, when, you know, they're coming on the air, he's making a birdie run. And it's it, that there's no, like Peyton Manning can't spring up out of nowhere and potentially lead a game winning drive, right? Because he's, when he's retired, he's done. But golf is, you know, even guys like around VJ's age, like can pop up on a leaderboard and, and uh, make big runs in in actual real you know PGA Tour major events and the the big boy events. It's just crazy how that works. Your point about other sports is about how big and how fast and how resilient you are with your body, right? In football in particular, is how much abuse can you dish out? There comes a point where the human body just is unable to sustain that kind of trauma. And in golf, the trauma is a repetitive motion. It's a different kind of injury that everybody deals. With. I mean, there's nobody in golf who's injury-free. Everybody's got shoulder, wrist, back, knee, neck, all this kind of thing. But it's more of a loss of skill by attrition as opposed to a single blow that ends a guy's career. Like, you know, basically, Tom Brady's Tom Brady because Drew Bledsoe almost lost his life when they, when they got, got hit on the sidelines there in that, that one famous game against the Jets. In golf, it's a slower burn. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and you kind of touched on it already, was 92. You're a rookie on tour. You're 32 years old, and you kind of just you mentioned all the mistakes you make when you're a rookie. I'm curious as to what, what you learned from that rookie year, what are, the, what are the mistakes you come out and, and make, and uh, you, know, you make it back pretty quickly. But uh, what, what are some examples there? I think it's different for everybody. I mean, I, I just think it's degrees. I finished second on the Ben Hogan money list, a couple of victories in, in the 91 season, a bunch of top 10s and top 5s. So I expected my play to, to transition to the PGA Tour, and it's a whole different world. The courses are bigger. The competition is better. The greens are faster and firmer. And, you know, these are things that you have to learn along the way. I didn't play any junior golf. I, you know, my, I was a little bug-eyed about it. You know, my first time I got paired with Ben Crenshaw, the first time I got paired with Jack Nicklaus. I mean, you know, those kinds of things, they're exciting for young players. And, you know, when I say young, I use the term relatively, right? I was 32, but I was young in terms of experience. And so th there's a learning curve for everybody. Whereas you could take a risk with certain shots at the lower level, at the PGA Tour level, you paid a bigger price. Th those are things that you have to learn. You have to learn how to manage expectations. You, you have to learn, you know, in those days on the, on the Hogan Tour, it was a three, every event was a three-round event. I got to now transition every week to a, to a four-round event. Um, you know, the three-round events are more sprints, and your mentality changes in that, in that environment. It's something that a lot of guys learn when they come up to the PGA Tour Champions, and they're, they're used to having a bad nine. If they have a bad nine holes, there's room to make up for that because there's an entire extra round of golf. I mean, you have a bad nine holes in the PGA Tour Champions, you've taken yourself out of the running for the championship. So these are all things that everybody learns at every level, and Billy Andrade, I 
gave me some very good advice my rookie year, and he said, you know what? The next time you come back, you'll be better prepared, not because you'll be a better golfer, but because you'll understand your situation a little better. And he's right. You know, when you come out initially, you, you have to learn how to manage your expectations, manage the situation, manage where you are. Sometimes, you know, you got lucky with a great shot or you had a great final round or you see it all the time. Players who, you know, shoot a great, a great final round and win the tournament and then, then they disappear because they can't, they struggle to live up to the expectation of that victory. Yeah, the way I kind of look at it is almost like the way you're describing it is there are lessons you're going to have to learn along the way, whether you realize you have to learn them or not yet. And it's just a matter of time before you encounter that. It might, you know, if you come out and have a lot of success, it might be until year three that you learn blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, if the success doesn't come right away, you might accelerate that learning curve and you might learn it in year one. Is that kind of what you're getting at? That is exactly what I'm getting at. And it's a better way of saying it. You know, it's the old adage, experience is something you get when you don't get what you want. Well, there's a lot of truth in that. It rubs you wrong at the moment. But the reality of it is, is that, is that there's nobody who plays this game who has ever played perfectly. I mean, look, let's take an example of a guy who's already probably played his way into the Hall of Fame in Jordan Spieth. You know, he had a run that was just unbelievable, wasn't it? And, and now he's had a couple of years where he hasn't had the same type of success. And everybody's looking around going, what, what, what's going on with Jordan Spieth? Well, you know what? He's hit one of those lulls that he's got to... You know, he's got to fight his way back to his older form. And he will. He's a great player. He's obviously a student of, a, of the game and an extraordinary competitor. And so there are cycles. You know, Jack Nicklaus disappeared for years and years and years, and they came storming back and won the 86 Masters. Look what happened to Tiger Woods. He, he went winless for a number of years and fought a bunch of injuries and then ended up, you know, coming back and winning the Masters last year. So nobody's immune, nobody's exempt, and everybody has to deal with it kinds of situation well i'm curious you know when you when you came out on tour this can be kind of really when you're a rookie or even through the 90s or any any of this time period two-part question who was the man like the guy when you came out on tour that either you were most starstruck by or most in awe of and is there any one player that you kind of played with along the way that kind of made you stop and watch or something you marveled at uh, a particular skill that a particular player had such as you know, one guy's driving ability, some certain guy's putting ability. Is there anything that was just kind of a shock to you in any way? You know, I don't think anything was a shock, but it was it was the realization that all of a sudden you were in it with them. And, you know, I, I've cited a couple of them already. Ben Crenshaw, the, the putting that Ben could come up with was just, it was marvelous. You know, he, his control of his speed and his line and his ability to deliver the club head so consistently time and time again. I mean, he was just, I mean, it's why he was famed as such a great putter. And this is why, you know, I would gravitate towards playing around the golf with him and ask him repeatedly, Ben, help me with my putting. What is it that, you know, and he would give you the typical kind of answer. Like you ask him the question, Ben, so tell me about putting. Oh, shucks. He'd go, I just try and hit it solid, you know, or, oh, I just try and roll the ball. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, come on. But this is really you know, when, when you're gifted that way, when you're kind of a savant in that regard, that's the kind of an answer that you might expect um, from somebody who's so accomplished and so much better. And so, you know, I, I just tried to open up my ears and listen to as much as I could from people like that. Jack Nicholas playing a practice round with Jack, you know, and living near him down here in South Florida. He'd step up on the tee and he'd go, now, Owen, how would you play this hole? 
and I would say, well, Jack, if there's water on the left, I'm going to aim it down that side. I'm going to play this kind of shot, blah, blah, blah. And he'd go, that's exactly right. And then he'd get up there and do the exact opposite, right? Aim at the water and cut it back. Play. And then he'd come and wink at me and go, but, you know, sometimes you just got to challenge the hole. So, but there's a lesson there. And the lesson there is that everybody has to learn to do it his own way. Right. Steve Pate, one of my great buddies on the, on the PGA Tour and PGA Tour Championship. You know, he likes playing a lot of holes backwards, and I laugh at him about it. We, we kid about it all the time. So, like, a lot of guys would get up there and try and hit a, a cut shot on a certain hole, and he'd play a draw and vice versa, you know. And he, it's just the way he saw the hole. The lesson there, again, is how, how do you – Corey Pavin. It's so much fun playing with Corey because he plays these shots, and he just doesn't care. Like, sometimes he'll take two or three clubs more than you think he needs and play some kind of shot that bends like Bubba Watson does and execute this incredible shot and get it in there to five or six feet when you didn't think it was possible. And that's, that's called playing golf. It's one of the things that, that you know, there's a strong argument to be made that we're losing touch with because, because golf ball technology is so extraordinary and so is golf club technology. The guys are just rearing back and ripping it, and they don't have to stand in the, in the fairway with the wind a certain direction and, the, you know, take two clubs extra and kind of shape some kind of low squealing touch shot in there to get it close. The lessons that I've come away with are that everybody has to find his own way to do it. And, uh, and you, you see a lot of people with brilliant talent who can't understand that. And you know what? Pretty soon they might have some success. They might stick around for a year or two. Pretty soon they're gone. And the guys who have the 20, 25, 30 year careers and then move on to the PGA Tour Champions. They've found a way to identify what it is they do best and live by it and present themselves enough opportunities to, to play great golf and win golf tournaments. Yeah. That's a, a, lot, a lot of brilliance in there that, to react to. Like the first thing I thought of there when you were talking about Crenshaw trying to explain uh, his putting was almost, if I'm, if I'm in his shoes, I'm almost like, I mean, I can't really teach you this, man. I don't like think about all this stuff. I, it's so natural to me that I couldn't begin to explain it to someone else. Is that kind of what, what the, the feeling you get in some ways? You hit the nail right on the head. I mean, people who have special talent, the definition of genius is being able to do something other people can't do. And genius doesn't always understand its own genius, right? And by the way, that word is used loosely in a lot of different ways, but we're talking about a particular aptitude for a very specific action. And when we talk about a guy like Ben Crenshaw putting, or Brad Faxon putting. You know, there's a reason that when Tiger struggles with his putting, he asks Steve Stricker to, to keep an eye on him because Strick has developed this technique and this ability. And, you know, there, there are all these things that go into the simple act of making a putt. And yet, here are a couple of guys who have redefined, you know, the level of success uh, with it. And they are tangibly better at it than other people. And the rest of us sit there and watch them. It's like when Tiger first came out. You know, guys would stop and sit and watch him hit balls on the range. And you know what? The first time I played golf with him, my jaw hit the deck because there are things that he can do that other people just couldn't do. John Daly had that also, you know. And there are a lot of really accomplished players who do a lot of things really well. But the ones that always piqued my attention, got my, got my eyeballs on them, were the guys who could do stuff that maybe I couldn't do or that most other guys couldn't either. Yeah, another thing you touched on there, which I'm on this, I've been on this trip, you know, watching a bunch of old masters and old highlights and stuff like that. And we did a podcast last week where 
talking about just uh, one, one of the topics we covered was the 96 Masters, which is, of course, the collapse of Greg Norman and kind of the duel that ends up happening between him and Nick Faldo. And it, it was the whole summary of the technology debate or discussion was it was epitomized in that 13th hole where Norman is 213 yards away and on the pine straw and debating whether or not to go for it. And you fast forward like 15 years and Phil Mickelson is just like, oh, yeah, six iron right to the middle of the green. And it, it just is. And I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to how much the challenge has changed in terms of what golf was like in the 90s versus what it's like today and how where the edges are, I guess the corners are cut and the true edge to the top competitors is earned because I watched those two guys debate whether or not to lay up on that hole and just thought like, whoa, golf has changed so, so, so much in not that long of a period of time. Uh, Well, it goes hand in hand with the technological revolution for sure. And this is part and parcel of, you know, constant change. Like we had the industrial revolution in this country, it changed everything. Then we had the information revolution that changed everything. And there are periods of time or in time where life changes as we know it. And as it pertains to golf, for example, there are quantifiable, identifiable moments in the history of this sport that have changed the way people play it. I mean, I remember playing Cypress Point one time and... I'm one of the shortest hitters on the PGA Tour, and I hit a five iron into the 10th green and made a three. It's a par five. And they were talking about how during the match, I believe Ben Hogan, who had one of the fastest club head speeds ever recorded, had to hit forward in there. So that tells you you need to know. There are people who understand this, and there are people who don't. And it has a lot to do with their era. You, you go find a guy like Jackie Burke, or Gary Player or somebody like that and ask them about playing golf in the 40s and 50s and they'll give you an entirely different story than I would, right? Having said all that, golf is still a game of strategy and control and emotional control. Can you hit the shot that you need to hit when it matters and under fire? And that's, you know, great champions from one era to the next would still be great champions. I mean, Ben Hogan would still be a great ball striker in this day and age and he probably... He'd probably wear out the competition just like he did in the fifties and sixties. Well, a couple, of, you know, gosh, we've been uh, talking about a lot of different things, and there's. I want to get to the. We really haven't even talked that much PGA Tour champions yet. Or and I got to ask you about the Ryder Cup as well, and some other uh, some other grab bag stuff here. But you won the 2011 U.S. Senior Open uh, you, shortly after you joined the PGA Tour champions. I'm just hoping you can. There's not a lot of guys that I can ask this question to. Of how do you compare? And or I, I'm guessing it's two different things. But how do you compare winning like a major on the PGA Tour Champions towards any of your other wins in your PGA Tour career? Uh, I'm not asking you to rank them, but like I kind of am asking you to rank them. Just where do they fall in the spectrum? You know. Well, I think everything has has a different perspective before and or after. So if you look at something as a goal, or if you look at something on the PGA Tour um, before it happens, and then you look at it in retrospect, everything everything has has more definition in retrospect than it does in the moment. So every tournament win, I you know, look, I haven't won that many tournaments. I won, I've won nine professional tournaments, four on the, what's now the Corn Ferry, three on the PGA Tour, and two on the PGA Champions. So they all have special meaning to me. I don't have 82 wins like Tiger or Sandy or whoever it is. The act of pulling off a win is such an in-the-moment event that you don't have time to consider all the ramifications of it until you're able to step back and review it in retrospect. And I think, you know, my first win was special because it was my first win. 
My second one was special because it backed up my first one. My third one was special because I had lost my status, my exempt status, and I had, I reestablished myself on the tour. And then transitioning into the Champions Tour, winning the Senior U.S. Open, it's you know it's the preeminent event on our tour, and I won it wire to wire. And that and that at the time, you know, like people ask me all the time, was that fun winning wire to wire? And I go, the first three days were great. Sunday was awful. I was sleeping on the lead every night, so each night the tension grew a little bit. And by Sunday, you know, I didn't sleep. I'm wide awake at two thirty in the morning, and I got a three forty-five tee time or whatever it is. And so the, the the anxiety builds and the stress level builds, and then then you go out there and you have to actually perform. And hey, if you don't win the tournament, you let it for three days, and you finish wherever top ten, top five. You had a nice week or whatever, but really you're a dolt for not winning the tournament, right? All these things come into come into play and you don't necessarily think about it because you're trying to channel your energy in one direction. And I, I would have to say that, look, I value all of my wins. I don't, I, I try not to separate them because as I said, I didn't, didn't win all that much, but you, you know, how can you argue with winning a USGA event, playing the, the final 36 with the hall of famer, Mark O'Meara, it was great competition. And uh, he's a big part of why I won because, because it was a comfortable pairing too, you know? Well, jumping around a bit, I, I got to ask about the 2005 U.S. Open, uh, which was at Pinehurst. But your the story as it relates to you, related to that U.S. Open, starts before you arrive there. Take take the listeners to how hot you got going into that and uh, how it all unfolded at Pinehurst. Yeah, um, I was doing the U.S. Open qualifier at, uh, at Woodmont, and, and I had one of those days where it's 36 holes um, in one day to qualify for the U.S. Open, for the, the, your listeners who don't know. And it was in early June in Washington, D.C. It was about as hot as it could be. Uh, you know, it was, I think the heat index was in the 105 range. It was really hot. And I had a, a morning round uh, of 73, one over par. I hit 17 greens. I did not get up and down on the only green I missed, and I had a three-putt and one birdie. And I was just madder than hell. I mean, it was one of those, you know, you couldn't do it. I, I felt like I was doing everything I needed to do. I could not shake in a putt, and I just couldn't get any momentum. And I was just fuming because if you make anything at the 68, you're right in the thick of it. You're going you're gonna to cruise into the tournament and uh, qualify for the U.S. Open. It's what we all want to do, right? So I, 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 was, I was bent. And I uh, tried to withdraw, and, and I asked the guy at the scoring table, how do I withdraw? He says, well, you tell us, and we tell them. And I said, all right, I'm going to have some lunch and think about it, but I, I just don't see it's too hot. I've got the tournament here, Tigers tournament at Congressional. I, I want to play that. And so I went over and had a, had a sandwich and thinking about it. And I go, you know, I, I tell you, it's so great. It's so frustrating. But I tell my kids all the time, you know, just because things are hard doesn't mean you get to quit trying, right? And I, I didn't think I could call them up and, if they asked me why I withdrew, I could explain to them that I just felt like quitting, you know. So I, I looked at my caddy and I go, you know, I, I just can't, I can't do this. I got, I can't look my kids in the eye, and it was their motivation really that made me go out and play again. And I shot thirty on the front nine. And I looked at Buck, my caddy, and I said, man, we can't quit now. He said, no, we can't. I ended up birding. I made a bunch of birdies early in the back nine, or a few birdies early in the back nine, and then I had a little drought there for three or four holes, and there was a. Reachable par 5, 16, a par 4, and another par 5, 17. And I knew I had to birdie at least two of them to get in. And I made this really tough about six-footer that broke maybe two, two-and-a-half cups on 16. It just curled in the bottom lip and went halfway around the hole and dropped in. 
And then 17 was this blind second shot to an elevated green. There was a guy up there, but the problem is that the pin was in the back of the green. If I hit it over the green, it went down a hill into a hazard. So I hit my shot. It was a pretty good-looking shot, and the guy watches it, and then he gets in his cart and drives down towards me. And I'm figuring he's going to come tell me i got to reload or whatever. And he said, did you see the shot? I go, no, it's elevated. I can't see anything but the flag. And he, he just takes two fingers and licks them and gives the down sign, you know, like a bucket. Like, <laughs> I hooped it. So now I'm starting to do the math, and I go, well, damn, if I make birdie on 18, it's 59. You know, whole second shot on 17. I need to make an eagle to validate shooting in the 50. So I get up on 18, there's this one brown patch. I, I flew my ball on it, got an extra, like, 15 yards out of it, and I got 270 to the pin, and I hit it on the green, and I've got this 25-footer that breaks about two and a half feet. Woodmont is a wonderful old-style golf club. has greens that have a lot of swales and movement on them. Anyway, I hit this putt. And it probably hit it, a, I don't know, probably, if it hadn't gone in, it was going to end up four, four and a half feet past the hole. But it went in the dead center of the hole. And I went to pick up my ball. My caddy looks at me. He says, what did you shoot? And I go, 58. He goes, no, you didn't. I go, yes, I did. I shot 58. Well, I went to sign my scorecard, and that son of a gun added up to 59. And I go, no, that's just not right. I, I'm just sure. I was 58. Long story short, it really is dragging, but. I, I just I got so lost in what I was doing I didn't even know what I was shooting and and I had to, I ended up finishing birdie eagle eagle for fifty nine. Oh my god! I I just all I knew was that you shot fifty nine. I didn't know the whole story behind the uh, behind almost quitting and all that. And then so like did you stay hot for the coming weeks because you're leading the U.S. Open through two rounds? Yeah, I was tied with uh, Retief Goose and played with him on Saturday and I played I played really good golf the first day. I shot sixty seven. Rocco Mediate and I were tied for the lead. And then my play kind of slackened a little bit, and I shot, a, I think, 71, 72 the next few days. And then I got paired with Michael Campbell on Sunday, and I played what I felt like was a better tee to green game, and I just got overwhelmed by being there, you know. And pretty soon, he's winning the U.S. Open, and I'm sitting there watching him shooting an 80, and I'm the idiot that's hugging him on the, on the 72nd green. So <laughs> one of those kind of, kind of things where I just got, I got swamped. I got U.S. Opened on Sunday at the U.S. Open, ended up shooting my miserable score, finished 20th or 22nd or something like that. But later in the year, I got the lead at, at Deutsche Bank, and, and I ended up winning Deutsche Bank, leading, leading it, coming into the house the last three days. So you learn lessons the hard way, and this goes back to something we touched on earlier about, you know, experience is something you get when you don't get you want, what you want. Well, like I said, I'm the fool that's hugging Michael Campbell on Sunday, but if I hadn't gone through that experience on Sunday, I don't think I would have handled Deutsche Bank nearly as well and uh, was able to win that one in September, over Labor Day that same year. Well, I mean, I can't imagine, and I don't want to put these words directly in your in your, uh, in your head here, but for a golf course, I can't imagine a harder golf course for when you're even slightly off than Pinehurst because the punishment is so, is so severe for an okay shot is never okay there. Like, you have to hit a very good to great shot on all of your approaches, and if you're slightly off, you can just be like, absolutely befuddled as to how you just shot 80 does that sound pretty accurate exactly right i mean it's it's the greens are rejective greens and on the first i knew it was in trouble on the first hole i hit it i striped it off the tee hit driver and had 89 yards to the hole and my pitch mark was less than two feet from the cup and i made bogey <laughs> and then i three putted number two and all of a sudden my head was spinning and it was just one of those type of things where at the moment you're just tr you're just trying to batten down the hatches and survive it but the reality of it is, is that the, one of the things they talk about is momentum, right? You want to capitalize on momentum, but nobody, nobody has ever figured out how to stop negative momentum. 
you touched on it earlier, what happened with Greg Norman in 96, and it's happened to everybody. No, nobody's exempt. I mean, Arnold Palmer, Arnold Palmer, the same thing at, at, at uh, where was it? At, Olympic. At Olympic. Yeah. Nobody is exempt. Yeah. It happened to Jack Nicholas. It happened to Ben Hogan at Cherry Hills. You know, these guys, those kinds of situations, those kinds of events teach you something about how to survive bad things. It's like Mike Tyson said. Everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. Mm-hmm. That's just part of part of the learning process, part of the learning curve. Well, I got a question. In uh, you, you need either one of your buddies or someone's playing a prank on you or something. I don't know how familiar you are with your uh, Wikipedia page, but it starts very normal. It says, you know, American professional golfer, born in D.C., won three times on tour, assistant captain. The fourth line on your Wikipedia pages at the 98 masters Brown and Scott Simpson both carted a quadruple bogey on the opening hole of the first round. I struggle to, I struggle to understand how that is a career in Wikipedia defining uh, moment in your career. I guess because it happened at Augusta, but I, and I got to say that I'm a little disappointed that Ernie Els has stolen my thunder because I was in the record books at Augusta for a long time. <laughs> and the rule performance on number one there t- took both Scott and me out of the equation. It's certainly an unfortunate event, um, but things can happen to you at Augusta that are unexplainable, and that was one of those things. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to uh, address that with Wikipedia, I guess. I don't know. The stuff, hey, stuff on the computer is crazy anyway. Well, 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 what is the story? But I mean, this is was this your first Masters? Yeah, it was my first Masters. Is it? Just take us to that first tee. They asked Sebi how he made. Uh, Seven on one hole, or he goes, I or four putt. He goes, I miss, I miss, I miss, I make, and that's what that's what happened at Augusta. You know, I I, uh, I hit my tee shot in the fairway. I kind of fanned my second shot, and I hit a pretty good chip. The pin was on the front left of the green. I had a pretty good chip that checked and then released. And I go get up a little bit, and then I go okay, settle there a little bit. And then I go whoa, Nelly, and then it goes over the green the other side, three feet below the level of the green, four feet below the level of the green, and to a tight pin. And if I put it up on the green, it's going to go off the front. So I hit it a few times. It kept coming back to my feet. I looked at my caddy, Mike Harmon. I go, what am I supposed to do now? He said, just keep doing what you're doing, only hit it a little harder. So I finally got the next one on the green and made the putt for an eight. Oh, well, what, what, what is it like, I guess, what was it like for you to play in the Masters and look kind of zooming past the first hole of that experience? But was that situation that much different than anything else you'd experienced? Well, Augusta is one of those places. It's one of those very special golf courses that are special in that regard because we've been watching the tournament for so long. I mean, I can remember, everybody remembers where they were in 1986 when Jack made that charge uh, on Sunday. And I was in a hotel playing a mini tour and we were rained out. And so everybody in the tournament was in the same hotel and you could hear the screams up and down, you know, the hollerings and Tied into the, to the great legacy of the game, you know, Alistair McKenzie and Bobby Jones and, you know, all of the great champions, Jack Nicholas six times and Tiger Woods five times now and Arnold Palmer and Ben Hogan and Byron, everybody, right? Everybody who's ever played the game at the highest level always wants to win that tournament. And so to be invited is a very special, is a very special thing to, to uh, and to play, I played it three times, and I wish I'd played it 300 times. You know what I mean? Well, one thing I wanted to make sure we talked about before uh, before we let you go was the uh, how, how you got tasked with the assistant captainship at the 2008 Ryder Cup. Um, are you, You'd never played in a Ryder Cup before. Are you especially close with Azinger? And kind of how did you fit into 
his overall uh, plan for pod systems? Yeah, you know, you should really ask Paul about that. We played a lot of golf together, like a lot of the same things. We're fishing nuts. We go fishing together. We used to talk about his plan for the Ryder Cup. And I don't want to speak too much out of school here because it's really his story. It's not my story. But he, he invited me to be on the team. And it was such an incredible honor. And there's all kinds of stuff that happens behind the scenes. For example, it might be a situation where you're on that team with somebody who you're not particularly good friends with, but there's a bond that forms and a friendship that develops out of that because of the experience that you endured during that. And it goes back to when we were all kids, you know, playing football or playing baseball or basketball, whatever it was that we did. You know, team sports have a special place. The joy and the agony and the pressure and the elation, they're all different they're, in their experience differently than they are uh, when you're just flying by yourself. So it was a great experience I'm forever indebted to Paul for the invitation. Not only that, but he, he hung me with the Redneck Pod. Boo Weekly and J.B. Holmes and Kenny Perry and Jim Fuhrer. People ask me all the time, how did you get that pod? And I just say early Christmas present. So much fun to watch those guys play at the level at which they played and for for the flag you know i mean you're playing for your country something that until the olympics came around this the only way to do that was be on the president's cup team or the Ryder cup team and uh to be able to to be a part of that and to witness those great players playing at the level at which they played is just it's almost inexplicable no, it's the uh, I I will ask on this podcast for eternity. Anyone that's ever been involved in one of those things will, at minimum, be at least one question about the Ryder Cup because everyone's just got only the the highest praise for for what that means to them in the, in terms of their golf career. So, uh, with that being said, we're gonna let you go, Owen. Thanks so much for the time and best of luck as you uh, go to reboot uh, your professional golf career here shortly. And we'll be uh, looking forward to watching you here at the uh, Charles Schwab uh, Challenge this coming week. Absolutely great spending some time with you. Thanks for the invitation, and I uh, hope we get a chance to do it again sometime. Sounds great. Thanks, Owen. Be well. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, yeah. that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect.